find it printed on the back of your sermon outline that's in your program. We won't read the whole psalm again, but listen to parts of this. As David sings out, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. They are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So far the reading of God's word. I have a good friend who has something inscribed on the inside of his wedding ring. You know you pay a few extra bucks when you get married and you can get an inscription on the inside and what he has carved in there is Psalm 34 verse 3. He had that carved in so that he could recite it at the beginning of his wedding celebration when he and the pastor came out front he stood in the front of the uh, sanctuary and he called out to his bride come glorify the Lord with me let us exalt his name together and he summoned her to come and join him in a life of partnership together a life of joy a life of confidence a life of you could call it holy extroversion they were together going to live outside of themselves with confidence taking their finding their refuge in God and as I've watched their life over several decades as they built their family and as they built their business and built their ministry it's been extraordinary that's precisely what they did as husband and wife they glorified the Lord together and this is the promise for all the church not just for a husband and a wife but for us as a church confidence joy refuge in him how do you get this life together well the answer is again and again in this psalm and again and again in the Bible make God your refuge he says it over and over before you go forward apparently you have to retreat before you step out you have to go back into refuge in God that's what he tells us here before you get to strength you first have to acknowledge your weakness and trust in God's omnipotence and his power and the warning comes to us that you will never ultimately know strength until you first know your weakness and your need for his strength and so the first point in the sermon my friends is simply this recognize your refuge taste and see that the Lord is good blessed is the man who takes refuge in him and then the very end the last verse of the psalm practically the last word says the Lord redeems his servants no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him 
Now, what is refuge? It's a shelter. Now, most of you are too young to remember those yellow uh, uh, signs that used to be on school buildings, and they had the little triangle and a little nuclear sign on it. What was that for? Anybody remember? It was a fallout shelter. It was the place that the, the Civil Air Patrol told you you were supposed to go if you needed a fallout shelter. It was a refuge. But a refuge is not just in case the bombs are going off. A refuge is a place where you go to find peace. It's the place where you know you are safe. A home. It's a place where you're confident that you're going to be okay. That's your refuge. And everybody has one. Everybody has a refuge. The question right now is, what's yours? What's my refuge? It's very interesting. There's two kinds of people in the world. The first person says, God, and God alone is competent to run my life. And the other kind of person says, I, I am competent to run my life. Those are our choices. It's really interesting uh, in verse 10. He talks about lions. Who are the lions? The lions are those who are competent, confident. They, they, a, they live unto themselves. They take care of themselves. They're strong. They are unafraid. And the lion is the American ideal. Isn't it? The lion is the American ideal. Rugged individual, able to, to handle anything that comes across my path. Powerful, independent, self-reliant. Now, obviously this is a setup because I'm going to say we shouldn't be lions, but I know some of the youth group and others in this church are going to say, Pastor John, you give me a double message. Because, Pastor, you're the kind of guy that's always a cheerleader for people. And it's true, I am. I, I love to encourage people to do their best. To get out there and discover your gifts and sharpen them. And then use them. And I teach people, young people, assume responsibility. Take your responsibility seriously. And, and uh, I just, I'm the first one in line to cheer for you when you get an award, when something goes well in your life. You know I'm like that. And yet, and yet, could it be that you would mistake what I'm saying to you as an encouragement to be a lion, to be somebody who is independent and strong in and of yourself? And that would be a disaster. You would sue me for malpractice as a pastor if that's all I did for you. Because in fact, maybe I'm encouraging you in a dangerous direction if I cheer you on. Because there is a default mechanism in each one of us that says, I've got to handle it because nobody's going to take care of me. I've got to look out for number one. And that default mechanism is in every one of you. And it's dangerous. It's deadly. Listen carefully. I told you there were two kinds of people. Really, there's three kinds of people. The first person is, those, is the person who lives for God. The second kind of person is the person who lives for himself. And the third kind of person, and that's most of us. Most of us will live a little bit for God, 
and give a little of ourselves to God and then sort of reluctantly live on the re leftovers as best we can. It's like, you know, you know you have to pay your taxes. So you, you pay your taxes and then you feel a lot poorer because you had to pay your taxes. And I give some of my time and energy to God and then at least I get some of the rest of my life for myself. Deadly. Dangerous. It is not the way to live. There's only really two, two ways to live. For God or for yourself. So where's your refuge? You have to identify it. In our culture, what's the biggest refuge? It's money. And close behind money is family. Close behind family is house, lodging, apartment. And close behind that is car. Nice car. Where's your refuge? The Bible tells us over all those things, it should be the Lord. Now, how do I know? Pastor John, how do I know if <laughs> the Lord really is my refuge? And here the answer might surprise you. It's very interesting. In the first three verses of this psalm, you know if you've gotten to your refuge by how you worship. Worship, how you worship, is the key to really know whether or not the Lord is your refuge. Look at the beginning of it. David, it just flows right out of him. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And so what you have, th this is really important. Are you a worshiper? I'm not asking are you a good singer. I hope you love to sing, but I'm asking you about your heart. Is your heart naturally, eagerly, quickly, at all times, eager to boast in the Lord, to praise his name throughout the day, whether you get the parking space or not? His praise will always be on my lips. And there's, it's marvelous here how it's both individual. David, you know David. David was a compulsive worshiper. But he says, let's do it together. And it's something we do as families. And it's something we do as a church family. We love to gather together. In fact, David has gotten a whole bunch of people together here. And it, you see in verse 6, it says, This poor man uh, uh, trusted the Lord. What, some people think David's talking about himself, but I don't think so. I think what David's doing is he's, he's saying, Glorify the Lord with me, and then he points to someone in the crowd. And he says, This poor man, and that you could translate it, This humble man called out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. Come on up and give a testimony. Come on up and share with us what the Lord has done for you. And we do that in this church when we ha have the opportunity. People come up front, we give them the microphone, and they, they testify in your home fellowship groups. You testify, this is what the Lord did for me. And that's how you know whether you're taking refuge in Him. You worship the Lord. Now, that leads to point number two in your outline. You see it there. So you take your refuge. You take it. How do you do this? Well, the instruction is very rich for us here. You have all these strong, active verbs. Here's how you do it. You seek. 
He says, I sought the Lord, verse 4. You look to him, verse 5. You call on him, verse 6. You taste and see, verse 8. Seek, look, call, taste, see. Isn't this beautiful? I've told you before, our youth group loves to play the game Manhunt. And on, the, the, on this property here, one of the things they'll do is they'll scatter around and then it's, it's find each other and get back to base and you should hear them. The shrieks and, the, and they, these guys, some of these guys know how to hide and they're, they're like detectives on the search to find each other. And that's the way we're supposed to be with God. Seek Him. And you know, what this, what, when God says, seek me, He also says, my door is always open. And I like this. You don't have to make an appointment to meet with God. My door is always open, He says. And then He says, look. Look. And I, I had this picture in my mind this week of one of the toddlers in our church. They're downstairs now. But after the service... They make a beeline for that table where Barbara has put out the re refreshments. And their eyes are looking. And they're, some of them are just tall enough to see the top of the table. And they see the bagels. And they see the fruit. And they see the delight, the cake. And, and it's so delightful. And their, their eyes light up. And their faces become radiant. They look at the Lord. They study the Lord. And then they call on the Lord. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. How do you do that? We talked about it in our Sunday school class today. When you wake up, you can either say, Good morning, Lord. Or, Good Lord, morning. Which one are you? You call on the Lord. Call on the Lord. Right from the beginning of the day and as you put your head on the pillow at night. Good night, Lord. Give me the gift of sleep. You call on the Lord. You know, not only is his door open, but we are told there is no busy signal with God. Isn't it frustrating to get put on hold? You don't get put on hold with God. You have direct access through Jesus Christ. There's no waiting for him. Taste, see that the Lord is good. Now, I meet with people all the time. And here's what I either directly or indirectly, what I get from them. I hear this, Pastor, I'd like to, but I just don't have time to invest in the things of God. Every once in a while, when I'm able, in my busy schedule, I'll slip God into my appointment book if it's convenient. Is that what we're hearing when people say, I don't have time to make the Lord a priority in my life, let me tell you what they're saying. What they are saying is, I can handle it. I can handle life on my own. And what, the, what we're seeing is their, their self-confidence. That's the problem. And what a Christian has to learn to do is to doubt their self-confidence. And this is hard. This is, again, going against the flow of the cheerleader saying, do your best and be all you can be. But you also have to doubt your self-confidence, which says, I can handle anything. Because the truth is, you cannot. No one can. We all need to make the Lord our refuge. But I know people, they'll maybe make an appointment for God. That's not what he wants. Seek 
Call, look, taste, see, and in verse 7, here's the payoff. The payoff is that when you, uh, what the Lord does is the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And this is so beautiful. That those who are fearing the Lord have this reality that is invisible before their eyes, but is real. That God has set up camp all around you. If you're a Christian, he has set up camp. If you had eyes to see. Does anybody remember the, the guy Gehazi in the uh, Old Testament? Who was Gehazi? He was the guy who was very nervous, and he wondered if the enemy was going to come get them. And then God opened his eyes, and he saw angels and chariots of fire all around. Don't worry, Gehazi. God has encamped around you. And that's what the Bible says he's done around you. It may be invisible, but it is more real than real. Seek him. And then humble yourself. Because who are the kind of people who do this? And again, it's not the lions who do this. It's the people who are described with words like afflicted and poor and brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. But what this really means is just humbled people, humble people. Verse 2, verse 6, verse 18. It's true in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, For Christ's sake I glory in my infirmities. Can you say that? I'm actually... I'm actually... Learning to be pleased when I feel weak? All right now, this is going to hurt. Like the, shot, the needle's about to go in, okay? This is going to hurt. But what the Bible teaches is that you should actually thank God when you experience failure or weakness or even embarrassment. What could be worse than embarrassment? But when you experience that, do you know what you need to do? Not get mad at God. Why did you let this happen to me? What you need to do right at that moment is learn to laugh at yourself and say, God, thank you for showing me my weakness. One more time, I'm taking refuge in you. And you brought me back to my sanity. And you actually thank God for this embarrassment. And you learn how to laugh at yourself and say, wow, do I need the Lord. And God uses this. Paul says, I glory in my infirmities so that Christ may get glory in me. So you humble yourself and then you obey him. Verse 11, 12, 13. It's really this powerful section of the psalm where he says, listen to what I say and then please do what I command you to do. And that's no surprise to any Christian. After all, what did Jesus say to his disciples? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? If you love me, you will keep my commands. So, he says, Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And whoever loves life, desires to see many good days, here's what you need to do. And then, he's, then he gets really strong. He says, I'm going to talk to you about how you, your tongue control. Keep your tongue from evil. What kind of tongue do you have? God wants to work on your, your speech patterns. And then, he wants to work on your relationships. Seek peace. Turn from evil. Try and have relationships that are healthy, holy, and peaceful. And pursue it. 
Now he's like an older man talking to younger men. And in our church, we take this very seriously. One of the core values of our church is that we want to pass the gospel on to the next generation. And this matters to us so much. The father of the home is the spiritual leader of the home. He is responsible for the spiritual nurture of his family, but it goes to both parents, and it falls to the wider church. We are called to nurture our children from strength to strength in the Lord. Now, I haven't read this book yet, but I just heard this week about a book by a man named Patrick Lencioni, and I don't know if he's a Christian, but the, the title of his book is this. The Frantic Family. What a great title to describe America today. The Frantic Family. And some of you know what I'm talking about. From morning till night, your feet hit the ground and you're running. You've got places to go, people to see. You've got to get your kids everywhere they go. And they've got to do soccer and jazz band and SAT preparation. They've got to be with this friend and that friend. And then they've got to uh, do this community service project. Then they've got youth group. Oh, no. well, we don't have time for youth group. But uh, the frantic family. What Lencioni says is that families need to sit down and figure out what are we all about as a family? What is driving us as a family? And then you have to examine, is it the Lord? Is it the Lord's agenda that is governing your family? Or is it the world's agenda? And friends, do we take the time to ask that question and get the right answer? What's our purpose? Notice the first word of verse 11. He says, come. And so what he's talking about here is there's a gathering for instruction. And in this church, that's why we have home fellowship groups and Sunday school and youth group and women's Bible study and men's, men's group. We have these because we come for instruction. As my friend David Pallison says, 50% of success is just showing up. Isn't that right? You've got you to gotta be in the game. You've got to get to the game in order to be in the game. Come, my children. Now, on one hand, he is talking about children here, and so now I have a question for moms and dads. Moms and dads, do you expect the public schools to teach your children the fear of the Lord and godly character? Moms and dads, do you expect the public schools to teach your children how to control their tongue when they're with their buddies and friends? Do you expect the public schools to teach your children about generosity and a concern for the kingdom of God? You can't. Well, then who's going to do it? You are. You are. We are. We will assist our children in the Christian nurture. We will assist the parents in the Christian nurture of their children. So you obey him. Tim Keller used to say this. He, he used to say, Lots of people come to me and they ask my advice. And they tell me that they trust me. And then Keller says to them, But if you say, I trust you, Tim but you never take my advice, 
then I know you're a liar. <laughs> we meet people like this. You know, pastor, what do you think I should do? Well, here's the counsel from the Word of God. Uh, friend, what do you think I should do? Well, let's see, what, let's see what would God say about this. And then they never take your advice. Well, then don't tell me you trust me if you won't take my counsel. David says right here, come, I will instruct you in the way you should go. And then finally, he says, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And you got that three times, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11. The Lord encamps around those who fear him. And this is where people get all anxious and nervous. What's this business about fearing God? You know, there's seven different Hebrew words and Greek words for fear that we translate into the one English word, fear. Uh, uh, the one word, one word that's not used here is the Hebrew word pakad, which means terror. And sometimes we read, and fear fell on the Amalekites and they fled. You know, that's terror. That's not what this is. This is the Hebrew word yara, which means trembling with awe before the majesty of the Almighty. Struck by the magnificence of God. That's what it is. And one of my favorite examples of this is back in Genesis 28, 17, when our friend Jacob, when Jacob was at Bethel, and God shows himself and Jacob says wow I'm afraid how awesome is this place and the word for afraid and awesome is the same root word yara which means he's, he, this is awesome and he trembles before God John chapter 1 John trembles and falls on his face before Jesus Christ in his glory Paul on the road to Damascus trembles and falls off his horse buries his face in the dust before the Lord if you know somebody and they say I don't have any trembling before God then what you have is the kind of person that uh, that Paul writes about in Romans 3.18 when he describes the very essence of total depravity and he quotes from Psalm 36 and he says you want to know the essence of man's depravity here it is are you listening there is no fear of God before their eyes and when the two thieves were on the cross next to Jesus the one thief repented he says, whoa, guy, to the other guy who they were mocking Jesus. The one repents and he says, hey, whoa, wait a minute. Can't you see Jesus is righteous? And then he says to the unrepentant, angry thief, he says, don't you fear God? And when Jesus describes that judge, the unjust judge, he says he neither feared God nor men. But the Christian, the Christian is someone who's described as living before the, with the awe and reverence before the face of Almighty God. Well, how can you be safe and that fear not be the kind of fear that cripples you? The answer is you find your refuge in Christ. And this is the solution. And you get this right at the very end of the psalm, in verse 22, where David says something very unusual in the Old Testament. It's shocking. He says, the Lord redeems his servants. 
No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Now what he's talking about is what Paul writes about in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's the way out of condemnation. And you don't have to be afraid anymore. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. I love that little poem. And when Christians get a hold of this, they become bold. Christians become great when they get a hold of this sense of tasting, seeing, seeking, and finding refuge in the Lord and the fear of the Lord. They become new. You know, martyrs. Who's this fellow in Iran right now? Pastor Youssef. Have you been reading about him? Secretary of State Clinton has pleaded for him. This Christian pastor who has been sentenced to death because he refuses to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. Tomorrow is another big day, apparently. The Iranian council is going to review this case. He's been sentenced to death for his refusal to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've seen any videos of this guy, he is so serene. Oh, he loves his family. He misses his family. He's been years now in jail and stinking Iranian prison. He misses his family. He misses his church. But you see, when a Christian has refuge in the Lord and the fear of the Lord in their life and has sought and seen and tasted that the Lord is good, then the bad guy comes and the bad guy says, I'm going to kill you for your faith. And you say, too late. I already gave myself away. You can kill me, but you can't hurt me. Are you with me in this? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. If you say, John, I would love to believe this, but I just... I just keep trying and I'm not getting it. Then I want to tell you what's going on. If you're, ref if you're unable to believe, what's happening is you are refusing to doubt your self-confidence. And you're still wanting to rely on yourself. And in your heart of hearts, you think, if I give myself over to Jesus, he's going to make me miserable. Or at worst, he's going to make me bored. I just want to tell you, taste and see. Taste our Jesus. Come home to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Let him into your heart. Let him govern your life. Taste and see. You know, this is fulfilled, this Old Testament verse, in communion we're about to have. This great gift to us, where the body of Christ is presented as broken and given to us. And the cup of wine is given to us, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So come, glorify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage, this great psalm. And we ask, Lord, that this morning, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, we would meet with you. We would taste and see that you are good. And that though we don't have it inscribed in our wedding ring, we want it inscribed in our hearts that we would taste and see that you are good and that we would come and glorify the Lord 
not just with King David, but with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.